0: 911, what's your emergency? I can't find Captain Nash and his wife's cruise ship. Tonight, 911 comes to ABC. If we're going
1: to make it out of here, we got to work together. Tonight at 9 on ABC, followed by 7 News at
0: 11. This is why you watch 7 News at 5. This breaking story is happening as we speak to get breaking news from the alert desk. When I know about it, you'll know
1: about it first. So you're always connected with what's happening now, only on 7 News
0: at
2: 5. no place to escape to this is the last hot oh, yes. on the left
1: <laughs> right your place. That's when the cannibalism started.
3: And get okay. into it, Anachian. you ready? You ready
1: to do it? We're just starting with the Anakian magic. Anachian. I don't give a shit what the audience thinks, oh, what yeah. the audience feels. We are talking about the hidden language of angels, oh. and why does it constantly make the people who hear it cucks? I don't Anachian. know. I don't know why you oh, hear an angel talk and immediately you're like, "Hey, you should think about fucking my wife." <laughs> and it is there's something about it. These angels are super yeah. convincing, and I don't <laughs> know why.
2: Nothing wrong with having sex with another person's wife while he watches and masturbates. A knockian Nothing. Welcome to the last <laughs> podcast on the left, everyone. I am Ben, hanging out with Marcus and Henry. Today's episode, put your, yes. uh, I don't know what hat on, wizard's cap, I'm not quite nah. sure. Not just wizard's cap,
1: all right? You got to put on a flame retardant suit. Okay. right, <laughs> that's a big one because there's a lot of open flame in this episode. There's also just straight up get your scrying glass. Mm-hmm. Because you're not going to be able to understand a single fucking thing unless you can even just begin to understand the concept of the Luke's formula, oh, which is my. like, I am, I am full of it. I have, I've been sick, sitting alone in a room, reading Aleister Crowley. I'm ready to be unintelligible yeah. and I'm coming for the listener.
3: Yeah, but that's episode Ooh. two, episode three. We're not quite getting into the magic as hard as Henry keeps fucking Anakian on that bullshit. I'll Anakian in. All right.
1: <laughs> I'll to keep a knocking until the fucking the day is done, friend, because you know, ass, grass, or angel language, or, or get out of the fucking truck.
2: Absolutely. Get out of the truck. Of course, Luke's formula, from what I remember from the Luke that I went to middle school with, it involves jupe, Gatorade, and the Reebok pump. So this episode... Wait a second. You just became Freighter Belinta. Whoa. You just a hidden secret. That's a hidden secret. hmm Jack Parsons,
3: part one. Now, we here at Last Podcast has spent a fair amount of airtime over the years talking about magic. But up until now, we focused on the teachers and the creators. People like Madame Blavatsky and Aleister Crowley. Oh.
1: The ones who create the brands. The brands that continue forward and are hidden in some of your favorite current brands, like Band-Aid and Coca-Cola, using oh. the magic of the Enochian.
3: Fantastic. <laughs> To really give a full scope of the magical experience, though, we thought it was about time we focused on a student. And in doing so, we hope to explore just what type of person was drawn to magical practice decades after Crowley and Blavatsky had published their greatest works and were either dead or beyond the height of their influence. Hmm.
1: This is the story of the ultimate student of magic, as far as I'm concerned, publicly that we know that has stepped forward. Because Jack Parsons is all of us, which is interesting because the, kind of what his last name means as well. There's a lot of magical elements here, but we're not getting to it. Marcus is holding me back.
2: Absolutely, <laughs> of course, Marcus is holding you back in no way creating the entire uh, content that we have here to talk about. But is, now, is Jack Parsons is he related to Alan Parsons at all?
3: Uh, No, the Alan Parsons Project. Project. No, No. they're not brothers. No, I think. But I think Alan Parsons was also in science. Didn't he do lasers? Wasn't that his whole thing? I believe so.
1: I can read your mind.
3: (laughs) Looking at you, I
1: can read your mind.
2: And that, of course, is off the famous song "Eye in the
3: Sky" by the Alan Parsons Project. (laughs) Goddamn it. Well, this is what happened after Blavatsky and Crowley. This is what happened in the mid-20th century, when America was far stranger than history has made it out to be. When bohemian enclaves of unconventional people used Crowleyan ideas and practices to live lives that were truly experimental. And in doing so, they changed the shape of the century in concrete and practical ways, ways Mm. that affect your life every single day.
1: It is completely true. And it is really interesting to see another person that got involved in ritual magic that would go to literally change the fabric of history. And Jack Parsons is one of those people because it's interesting because everybody thinks nowadays, right? Everybody's into eating ass, right? They're all talking about eating (laughs) ass and how brave they are for eating ass and all this kind of shit. But you know who ate ass? Mm -hmm. your ancestors people (laughs) from the 1950s jack parsons ate ass and developed some of the most important rocketry science on the face of the planet try that zoomers (laughs) you're just on your fucking your little tiktoks you got to get out there doing science while you're licking butthole
2: well maybe yeah exactly it's more licking than eating i've always said Uh, but isn't Mm -hmm. that good to build up an immune system yeah
3: Mm. i suppose so it's healthy Well, Jack Parsons was a man who was certainly one of the most fascinating and consequential figures of 20th century science, but he was also a figure of great interest in the field of magic. Mm -hmm. Jack Parsons was one of the first science fiction nerds who so loved the genre that he made the supposed fiction of rocket-powered flight a reality, despite the scoffs of established scientific figures who maintained that rockets belonged only in comic books. scoffs (laughs)
2: absolutely there were
3: scientists that didn't think rockets were going to work most scientists didn't think that rockets were going to work the vast majority of scientists thought that rockets didn't And by the way when we say rockets uh they actually rockets were actually thought to be so much bunkum and hokum that they had to Hmm. change the name of rocket to guess what today we call them jets we call them jets but you know but jack parsons was actually one of
1: those people who called rocket traveling to rockets traveling the moon hokum because again at the beginning you'll see the transformation of Jack Parsons, from the scientific explorer to the explorer of the inner world, then outer world, because you could see at the very beginning, he was like, we're using these rockets to try and get further into the atmosphere to study for mm. weather and do and various things and study the space in a way that we never could before. But eventually what he would do, he would set the building blocks for what would send us to
3: space. Mm-hmm. Cool. And to a man like Jack Parsons, once he made science fiction a reality, he felt that it was not only logical, but almost inevitable that he could then do the same thing with myths, legends, and fantasy, i.e., magic.
2: Sweet. <laughs> I did just read, they're getting closer to being able to reanimate human dead human flesh. I did read an article on that. That's
3: interesting.
1: Hey man, all you gotta do is fucking pop it in the microwave. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> we crackling. call that necromancy. Necromancy.
2: Oh. <laughs> ah.
3: your hot pockets done and your necromancy (laughs) Mm. (laughs) but with that confidence and the belief that science and the metaphysical realm could be combined Jack Parsons also inadvertently gave another science fiction writer the final push that he needed to create the world's first science fiction religion which of course became the most successful new cult of the 20th century Scientology. Mm -hmm.
1: Fucking the the real main brain, man. He understood. (laughs) Uh, And as we go through these episodes, you'll see it's always important that if you're starting a little religious movement, always keep one foot outside the circle mm -hmm. because that allows you to not get run over by the train of beliefs.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. A tubby little man, L. Ron Hubbard. Does sound like a teacup that should be able to talk. (laughs) <laughs> Dear DA, we've already, we've already
1: made our we've made our LH jokes in the past. Right, they're done now. LRH is the future. We're going to talk about it. Next
3: episode. <laughs> but while Jack Parsons' work in the field of science and his work in the magical realm produced results that are mixed when it comes to consequence, good was never the goal of Jack Parsons. Quote unquote good. Mm. Nor, mm. however, was his goal evil. Quote unquote evil. But neither was he trying to gain power, money, or fame. From what As I is a sword t- good or evil?
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: That's, That's the truth. Is a flame good or evil? Indeed, it's neutral.
1: Think about it, you fucking pieces
2: of shit. <laughs> well, it's not that complex.
3: <laughs> but from what I can tell, Jack Parsons' only goal in both science and magic was simply to see what would happen and to see how far he could take it. This was mm. not out of a lust for power or even a lust for knowledge, but more for the experience and the accomplishment. In other words. His only goal was to live an experimental life.
2: I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. at this point, he just sounds like Russell Brand. <laughs> you, would <laughs> be surprised. May I ask, did there he ever are, have a job?
3: Jack Parsons? Oh yes! yes. God yes! Oh yeah! Oh, okay. you're gonna love oh, him, yeah, self-made, okay, self-made fantastic. man. Oh no, you gonna love him. This, oh my God, yes!
1: If you, I, I told Kissel before this is that you're, if your libertarian, the very center of your the cold libertarian heart would cry a single red and white and blue tear if it's red freedom is a two-edged sword by Jack Whiteside Parsons Mm. because Robert Anton Wilson actually puts this another famous libertarian puts this in a very interesting way is that he was four dudes right Jack Parsons was four men he was a scientist he was an occultist he was a political dissident
2: and he was also an idiot just like the rest (laughs) of us and And like that's
1: the best part
2: (laughs) true libertarianism knows no country your flag, <laughs> rogue rogue group of individuals who all like to get together and complain with their free with their
3: free metro cards around their neck mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes jack parsons experiments were positive and sometimes they were negative because experimentation is messy and unpredictable chick got weird in bad ways for parsons in the magic world more often than not and his scientific work was so recklessly dangerous that it's a miracle He made it to the age of 38 before he accidentally blew himself up.
1: I'm in my Jack Parsons (laughs) year. Oh, my.
3: But in true magical fashion, i.e. the unpredictability of it all, the courageous experimentation of Jack Parsons in the scientific realm helped give humanity both the technology to destroy itself and the means to explore the stars. Great. Is a candy bar good or evil? (laughs) Neutral. Neutral. But nevertheless, the road to Parsons' last fateful day as a charred corpse in a Pasadena garage is filled with explosions, sex, fire, magic, sex, heartbreak, sex, and betrayal. Oh, we got my a horny God. boy in our hands, man, and his <laughs> tank
1: was never empty. He's the horniest scientist since, who's horny? Stephen Hawking.
3: Like Hawking, Stephen Hawking, very horny. Wasn't Einstein super horny in that movie with Meg Ryan?
2: Yep, Yeah, Einstein. that's a fake. No, that Einstein was-, <laughs> was known for being quite a hornball. Benjamin Franklin, very yeah. horny.
3: Extremely horny. I feel
2: like we're heading into conjecture.
3: <laughs> I, don't <laughs> I don't know. Unfortunately. Benjamin unfortunately. Franklin was historically horny. He Remember, yes. they have a, an actual uh, some bust, a gigantic bust of Benjamin Franklin in Philadelphia across the street from where he's buried, in which he looks visibly <laughs> horny. He has a boner. Yeah, he's going like, it's this, fa- you can't see it in the, in, at home, but it's,
1: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> take a little flash of that and we'll post it.
3: It's a smirky smile with small eyes. Well, as was quoted in our main source of this series, Strange Angel by George Pendle, Mm. Parsons said that if he had the genius to found the jet propulsion field in the US and found a multi-million dollar corporation in the process, then he should be able to apply this genius to the magical field.
1: Mm. This motherfucker was just literally a child. He walked into a university and said, we're doing rockets. And after (laughs) he did that, like, really, like, he literally just let him run. We're going to get into it. But he like, why wouldn't you think you got the magic touch?
3: Yeah. For Parsons, science and magic were two sides of the same coin, which isn't the most ridiculous notion when you consider that Parsons came of age in a time when discoveries about the way the world worked were coming at one of the most rapid paces in human history.
1: And if you read the book Sex and Rockets, The Occult World of Jack Parsons by John Carter, there is a, uh, he basically talks about how it's how we got into the Lima in the first place, which is that he felt that the original writings of book of the law were explicitly explaining quantum physics and that, so he was already, he was seeing science in the
2: magic. Yeah. And of course, if you read the book sex and red rockets, uh, you will go to prison. It's illegal. (laughs) What is in that (laughs) book? It's, it's horrible. The author is currently in jail. He is the dog fucker version of Adolf Hitler. He's currently (laughs) writing his new book, Mine, mine, mine snuggles. Dude, come up with it. That is right. Mine, mine snuggles. And so you're plugging. So you're plugging. It's called mine snuggles. And it's a man who mine fucks snuggles. dogs. It's called sex yeah. and red rockets. Why are we so, plugging it? If God, he is the Adolf Hitler of dog fucking, why are know. you plugging it? snuggles. Yeah.
3: <laughs> However, <laughs> Parsons was a far better scientist than he was a magician. And when it comes to the metaphysical realm, it could easily be said that one of his partners in the magical field was far more successful and consequential. That partner (laughs) was L. Ron Hubbard. And L. Ron Hubbard will show up in full force in episode three. I am waiting in the (laughs) wing.
1: Oh, my debut. He's very good, man. Again, you just got to keep your head on a swivel when you're dealing with magic. Because you say he was a bad magician.
3: No, I I didn't say he was a bad magician. I did not say he was a bad magician. I said he was a better scientist than a magician.
1: Well, he definitely got paid for one.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Scientist by trade, magician by desire.
3: Yeah. But long before Parsons and Hubbard joined each other in the desert to attempt Aleister Crowley's moon child ritual that was supposed to summon the scarlet woman of Babylon who would bring about the end of the world, Jack Parsons was little Marvel Parsons, born October 2nd, 1914 in Los Angeles. His name was Marvel.
2: Yeah, oh yeah. His first
1: name was Marvel, and he was born Marvel. Dick first.
2: Oh, it's <laughs> the first
3: it's tough, pussy he ever came out of. That's a that's a tough way to break your back. Marvel, called Jack by his parents, had been born in the middle of the great Los Angeles population boom, wherein the amount of residents of the city had grown sixfold from fifty thousand to three hundred thousand. In just 20 years, it's when Los Angeles finally got water.
2: I would love to hear them complain about traffic. 300,000, that's the amount of people that are in, in front of me right now. It's nothing. <laughs> uh, you can't see this at home, but Kissel just turned into Andy Rooney. Like he just, he's just <laughs> like, why, why, like, like why, hey, what's through the zoom. What's the deal with um, license plates? Why do I care where you're from?
1: <laughs> well, they called him Jack. They called him Jack because he was named after his father. Right. Who became he they separated the family separated yeah. because his father got a little too into the sex workers for the comfort of the family.
3: Yes. Well, yeah, he wrote a letter to his uh wife that was one of those classics like, you know, today what I'm doing is considered wrong. But in the future, <laughs> in the future, in the future <laughs> everyone's going to be into gonna it. Be doing it. So They're it's all like gonna so be so doing. It's, it's like it's your problem. For not being on my A time level. traveler.
1: You kind of <laughs> need to right. be a time traveler already, okay, for you to understand our marriage.
3: But as it's pointed out in the book Strange Angel, there was something about Los Angeles, perhaps the entertainment industry, that attracted different esoteric belief systems and alternative ways of thinking. And all this would later, of course, make L.A. a hotbed for cults. Mm.
1: Hey, you don't think it still isn't? It still is, buddy. Don't count us Uh, out. You wait. I just said would
3: later make LA a hotbed for Colts. Never said it's. Stop being a hot bed it's, for cults. It's a warm bed at this point. Cults have gotten
2: too mainstream. <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, everyone, now everyone just, they're in their cult, in their home, on their butts. In my All day, right. cults used to have to go outside or at the very least go outside to go to someone else's house and never leave that house. Back yes. in the day,
2: they had to annoy people outside of subway stations. The hairy Christians, I give them credit. They still hang out at Union Square, annoying everybody, but they're there. They're doing it old school, and uh, I would also say there is a little
1: bit of an esoteric edge to the fact that, like, well, yes, it was capitalism slash like front like you know expansionism, but like we made Los Angeles green by uh, yeah. the power of our ingenuity. There's something about that where, like, obviously now we're seeing that it's a problem, yeah. Um, to put a bunch of green things where it's supposed to be a desert, but the magical mm. there is like a there's a transformational edge that kind of leads
3: towards futuristic thought. No, it is the will, like it's the the concept of will. Around the time of Jack Parsons' birth in 1914, you could find secular utopian communities, Christian scientists, spiritualists, Alistair Crowley Thelemites, and Madame Blavatsky Theosophists, all right there in Los Angeles, in a town of about 300,000 people. Mm. Another quality that marked Los Angeles in the early 20th century was wealth. And Jack Parsons, like his eventual mentor, Alistair Crowley, he was born into a life of servants and palaces in the city of Pasadena, raised by his single mother and his grandfather. But as opposed to Crowley's reputation as a Hellion, which earned Crowley the nickname of the Great Beast 666 before he reached puberty, Parsons was a spoiled only child with few friends who spent most of his time reading Arthurian legends and Greek and Norse mythology.
1: One day you'll all see. I'll eat everybody's pussy within 25 miles.
3: Like, and you're like, man, well, that's it's a power nice, of the Marvel. nerd. That's nice. Power
2: of the nerd. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. it sounds like young Sheldon to me, but that's okay. Oh, man. Yeah, you don't think young Sheldon ain't fucking? I, don't I mean, it's the last Sheldon. He's being abused. But, but, yeah. Yeah. All
3: right. Oh, no, it's going to get even nerdier, Ben. While Great. Parsons enjoyed the more fantastical stuff, his true love, was early science fiction. This guy was a true nerd, a tiny little pudgy nerd. Specifically, <laughs>
2: <It's funny. laughs>
3: Specifically, Parsons loved the work of Jules Verne, whose stories used actual technical knowledge to extrapolate how space travel or submarines might work. And Ooh. Verne wasn't the only one doing this. H.G. Wells was predicting aerial warfare in a story called The War in the Air. And a writer oh, yeah. named <laughs> And a writer named W. Alexander predicted organ transplants in a story that had the unsettling title of New Stomachs for Old.
2: I wouldn't <laughs> mind it. Oh, sweet. Mm-hmm. it's
3: kind of weird.
1: It's it's interesting about how like that's what I like about science fiction, especially short-form science fiction back in yeah. the day, is it allows you to drop these little like ideas. Mm-hmm. In there, that like I, I do feel as we see as we've talked about that we've kind of magically projected a latent dystopia onto our reality because oh, yeah. of the shit that we were all obsessed with the in,
2: a- in the eighties. Well, organ mm-hmm. transplants are good for the most <laughs> that part. <one> is good <laughs> unless they're unless you're beaten with a club and all of a sudden you wake up with a one kidney less or something. <laughs> but yeah, when it's, it's done medically and legally, it's quite positive. Very good. Yeah. yeah. Although sometimes you wake up and you didn't like to make rib, but then you wake up and you're like, "Mm, now I want to make rib. And it turns out you got your heart from somebody with diabetes. (laughs) Continue.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, for Parsons, these stories blurred the line between fiction and reality to the extent where that line extended into the world of the metaphysical as well. Hmm. The world of myth, legend, and the occult. Concerning the science, though, Parsons was most drawn to science fiction stories about rockets, which in the 1920s were considered by scientific minds to be pipe dreams, even though people have been experimenting with the technology for centuries. Yeah.
1: Well, I think they said the closest they could get up, they think that they got something up like a mile high. They yeah. figured out how to do that. And then they're like, we've done it. <laughs> like, you just like shot a thing up and they're like, they're all just standing around like, Good work everybody.
3: Not bad. Good work and it's like that's it. Mission how mission complete. Well, rockets were somewhat understandably considered unfeasible because most of the people who conducted these experiments tended to blow themselves up whenever they tried it. Ah. Cool. For example, the first recorded attempt at rocket flight occurred in China in the year 1500, when a man named Wan Hu strapped 47 black powder rockets to a wheelchair yes. affixed to two kites. Yes, yes, in this is 1500. Awesome. I just thought wow. that this was so long ago. Yeah. Well, ostensibly, the rockets would propel him up into the sky, Yeah. Mm-hmm. and then the kites would enable him to sustain flight. After he reached altitude, dude, I would
2: have loved to be this guy's friend, man. (laughs) But they're all there,
3: they're watching. You know, the
1: whole town got around. He set up all these big barrels of shit, and he's got a. He's just like. Why don't we put a gold ribbon on the chair? That'll make it nice. They put a gold ribbon. It's like, that's nice. When we go to heaven, when I'm shoot up to heaven and I meet the dragon that encircles the sun or whatever, we'll show him. We'll have gifts and shit. And they're all like high fiving and stuff, man. That must have been
3: fun right before you lit the fuse. Yeah, dude. All 47 rockets exploded all at once. And I mean, at least the challenger got off the ground. Yeah. And the resulting blast disintegrated Wan-Hu so thoroughly that he seemed to disappear into thin air, or more likely, a chunky red mist. Ah, uh, so
1: did it work? That's the question. I mean, maybe they did. Maybe, like, he was very sad. You just hear the whole audience go, like, little golf <laughs> clap. I mean, like, wow. I guess that's how that was supposed
2: to go. <laughs> wow. <laughs>
3: In warfare, there were also stories throughout history involving primitive rocketry. By writer George Pendle's research, armies were using rocket-powered arrows as far back as 1000 AD, and rocket brigades were used by everyone from the British to the French to the Americans up until the War of 1812.
1: Now, I might be wrong, but they were kind of like, they were similar to sort of like fireworks in a way, right? Where they would just kind of shoot a thing off. Like, I don't really understand how how old school rockets worked.
3: Uh, well, I mean, it's it is shooting something a long distance in order to stab someone. I think with the it's, rockets in the uh, one thousand and like one thousand A.D. and the rocket brigades were, you know, trying to blow people up. You know, using rockets, trying to blow people up from a long distance away. I it's think just a bit of just a bit of gunpowder, right? Yeah. They said they were doing it in
1: twelve forty one. They were just it was fire arrows at the time. They considered those rockets sweet, yeah.
3: but rocket brigades were abandoned. Because they blew themselves up far too often. Because uh, it's a lot of black powder, it's a lot of saltpeter. Or they couldn't deliver on their promises consistently enough to be counted on in a battle plan. Really, by the time of Jack Parsons, it seems like rocketry had been relegated mostly to recreational fireworks outside of a few researchers. Because there were some men who very much believed in rocketry. Sure. But seeing as how Jack grew up in Pasadena, he had a whole desert where he could fire off. Homemade rockets and blow shit up with his grandfather using materials he gathered from store bought fireworks. That is fun. It is
1: kind of interesting that it it's probably it's, it sounds vaguely like a rich person's hobby that they can actually get away with this shit. Is that he had the money and the resources to buy this stuff? Mm, yeah, to buy it. That's true. To, but the idea yeah, of blowing
3: it's, it's the, the idea gun of blowing powder. stuff
1: up. Yeah, that's
3: true. Yeah, yeah. Blowing now shit we up, took that back. It, I was the about trashy to say, like,
1: people took that. Yeah. From the rich people.
3: Blowing shit up in the desert is certainly not a highfalutin hobby. But to get the good, I see
2: what he's saying.
3: Yeah. 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 I get I get what you mean. Now Parsons was homeschooled until the age of twelve, but when he was suddenly sent to a public junior high at puberty, he arrived as a fat little effeminate mama's boy with odd <laughs> highfalutin manners that didn't do well on a Los Angeles playground.
1: I mean, what do you do if you oh create a little God. Prince Andrew? That's he's, He doesn't know. You know, his whole life has been living in the cedar-lined mansions of Pasadena where they would just hand him books or, like, learn the history of the world. You're like That was when they used to have, like, a book that would just be called, like, Germany. Yeah. And you, like, open it up and you just learn everything about Germany. And that's all you do for days. Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah, of course, you might be a little strange.
2: Yeah. Well, this is a perfect, I mean, it's just... It's a perfect storm of pure and utter horror that all of us had to go through. You're hitting puberty. He's thrown into gen pop. He's now in the deep end. And he's just like, oh, you guys don't love rockets. Huh? I mean, just immediately Mm-mm. punched oh. in the face.
3: That's the thing. Combine that with the fact that he arrived every day in his grandfather's limousine wearing a tailored woolen suit, <laughs> speaking I mean. in an affected British accent, and carrying around a stack of science fiction magazines. Oh, man. Ooh. Yeah, I you, I mean what do they call them in the uh the Joel Rifkin series? An abuse unit? Abuse unit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's hard, oh, man. They don't know because everybody else is like playing outside.
2: Yeah. You know, yeah. everybody
1: else is like playing with a hoop and a stick and, and beating each other up and fucking like <laughs> messing with girls underneath the bleachers and shit. And then you literally have the, the rotund genius arrive. Who's <laughs> just like, God oh, it's Papa and, and he's listened to my tales of being eight.
2: <laughs> but there can be, you know, coming from money, I'm sure there were some kids who uh, thought he was a good time, who saw that uh, he had the good stuff, good toys and things.
3: Well, yeah, this kid, his name was uh, uh, Edward Foreman. To Parsons' great luck, he was saved from a particularly serious beating by a kid two years older than him. Edward Foreman pulled the bully off and broke the bully's nose, Whoa. thus beginning a lifelong friendship. Nice. That's why right, nerds always acquire goons. Always. Mm-hmm. I, had a, I had a pretty good goon squad myself growing oh, up. Oh, yes. It's
1: yeah.
3: very important. Just cultivate your goon. Yeah. Grow
1: your goon. Treat your goon with enough kindness so they don't turn on you, but enough pressure and, and alacrity <laughs> so that they also understand to heal when it's important for the yeah. society.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You do understand you're talking out loud, Henry.
3: <laughs> no no actually i mean it took me personally until high school to develop the skills to gain a goon squad um mm. but then after that the bullying stopped because that's the thing i turned some of my bullies into my goon squad
2: there you go boom. Boom. that easy flip it boom! Yeah. Flip it. you gotta flip it
3: now foreman actually liked hearing parsons talk about science fiction becoming science fact because foreman's father was an engineer and oh. it didn't hurt that Parsons was given twenty dollars a day by his grandfather for pocket money at a time when the average wage was twenty six cents an hour. Holy, Holy God! He's, he
1: was
2: going every he day was, to school.
1: Oh yeah, dude. Oh yeah, with 20, like uh, like five hundred bucks in his pocket, essentially. He
2: <laughs> was oh Francis from
1: Pee Wee like Big Adventure. Yeah,
3: yeah. he was. But he was. Yeah, he was. A, he wasn't quite that bad, but a little bit. Little well, Francis,
2: bit. Francis was a dummy and kind of a bully in his own right. He's the yeah. worst kind oh. of a rich kid. Yeah. Oh
3: yes. But while one might think that Foreman was only in it for the mooching, he and Parsons soon started working on plans on how they could build a rocket that goes to the moon. Cool. And they spent so much time experimenting with explosives that their nickname at school was the Powder Monkeys.
1: Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's like a Rivers Cuomo side project.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
3: Look,
1: man, I I tell you what, I remember this one time I showed my mom. I was like, I went feverish. So I was so obsessed as a little kid about how I wanted to be an inventor, right? Like I was obsessed with this idea. So he's used to like build things in the house and I'd be like, Mom, look at the time machine. And she'd be like, Your father and I are about to get divorced. And she didn't want to <laughs> deal with it, right? But then one time I showed her this design for a cape that had a bunch of pockets in it that I was like, I'll jump on this and I'll be able to like fly. I'll be like a superhero. And I remember my mom being like, Emmy Thomas. You are never going to be able to fly. <laughs> and I'll always, Aww. I remember that night because I was watching Dean Kane's Superman. You remember that <laughs> Superman show yeah, that he was I in? Remember. Yeah. I remember. I remember. Harry Hatcher. She shut off the TV to be like, you're never going to fly, Henry Thomas. And Eva once. And I remember being sad. And I went and I put all my papers and I put them away. And now look at me. I fly fucking three times a month. absolutely and
3: you've learned to hate it yeah you really hate it i think it's the thing you hate most in life very much yeah (laughs) but at the same time parsons also claims that around this age he had his first mystical experience although not much is known as to what actually happened or how it happened in his early high school years he's like 13 maybe 12 Parsons claimed that he tried invoking the devil in his bedroom. Yes, it's
0: <laughs>
1: fucking sweet. I used to remember. I remember when I used to get all my Wicca books and shit, and we used to talk about demons. Man, it was fucking awesome when you're 13. Dude.
2: Just imagine you're the devil, and you're like, I don't want to hang out in your 12
3: year old room. I,
2: just got, I
1: don't I'm want to devil. see this your sucks. your comic books. This smells yeah, horrible. This is no, it was horrible.
2: You're disgusting. Me.
3: Parsons, however, only said that the experience was a quote magical fiasco. Whatever that means. (laughs) And while it certainly ignited an interest in the occult, it also put him off serious practice until he was more prepared. So who knows what he actually summoned? I don't think he summoned the devil.
1: This is neighbor Rodney, who's like, please, for the love of God, I need the chanting to stop. It must stop. All right, because if not, I'm I'm gonna beat you. All right. I know, listen, I know no. your parents there up there. I'm gonna have to step in. I'm gonna have to beat the living shit out of you. And I don't want to. Because this is I'm, a fi- this is a fiasco. It's a
2: fiasco. <laughs> fiasco sounds like he just spilled all of his beakers. He just everything
3: turned out to be a total disaster. He probably oh, wet himself God, on accident. Everywhere.
2: No. I it's killed a fia- the
1: doves. It's yeah, a fiasco. That's, that's a magical fiasco. <laughs>
3: But meanwhile, Jack Parsons was blowing up so much shit at home with Edward Foreman that his mother sent him off to military school. Oh. And of course, once he got there, Foreman could no longer protect him. But just like a class clown uses laughter to ward off bullies, Parsons oh. used his knowledge of explosives. Sweet. Yeah, dude. To impress the other kids and probably just to see if he could pull it off. Parsons blew up every toilet in the academy all at once.
2: Yes. See, now this yes. is cool.
3: Yeah. And he got kicked out as a result. Well. Cool. Even cooler, dude. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it is cool. Now I was going back and now we can go back to the old school there and be like, what happened, man? Why are you back, dude? I got kicked out. I was too badass for military school.
3: <laughs> they call me rocket nerd. <laughs> <laughs> he returned home found that the field of rocketry and air travel was rapidly gaining traction other people his age were starting to get into it in 1927 when parsons was just 13 he made contact with future german rocket scientist werner von braun Von yeah, braun was only 17 years old wait how and the they, fuck did that happen i said i don't know man pen pals they used to talk on the phone what
1: yeah dude they're yeah. just friends. This is the back of the. This is also a time period where, like, you could call up a historical figure on the phone. Yeah, and they just like pick it up. It was just been like, yeah, FDR
3: still can't walk. You know what I mean? Like, it's easy. It was easy to do. Yeah, but it's not a just. I mean, they're seventeen and thirteen. You know, and these are the guys who are. I mean, you know, Werner von Braun, not a spotless record but was still partly Mm. responsible for sending man to the moon. And of course, Jack Parsons is also responsible for quite a bit of space travel as well. But these two guys are talking on the phone at 13 and 17. Wow. But suddenly when Parsons was 15, the gravy train that he'd ridden all his life suddenly came to a stop when the stock market crash that caused the great depression wiped out almost all of his family's wealth to the point where Parsons figured there wasn't really any point in continuing school. He was too smart for it. He had all the knowledge he needed to work in explosives and propulsion, and he was never going to be able to afford college. And Mm -hmm. there was also no college that was going to let him seriously study rocketry anyway. So he figured, fuck it. I'm going to do it myself. He dropped out and he got a job at the Hercules Powder Company fucking fucking around with dynamite. Wow. Dude, this is truly
1: like an example of what I would call the basics of magical thinking. You can poo-poo me all you want, but it's like, he saw the straight line. He saw a straight line. He's like, I'm just going to go right to gunpowder. I don't need to learn math. I don't need to learn biology.
3: I mean, he will learn bat- math eventually, kind of. But still, it was all cobbled together. It's not that he doesn't need to learn it. It's that he doesn't need to be taught that shit. Yeah. like that, All that stuff comes naturally. I mean, and he can put in the work himself. To understand oh. it And he's also Because that's the thing they cannot be overstated How fucking naturally brilliant Jack Parsons also was
2: Yes All of it is self-taught May I just say Hercules, Hercules, Hercules
3: Hercules. <laughs> he's been saving it <laughs> Remember that He's been that saving movie? it I
1: Remember that <laughs> yeah, I remember. The fried
3: chicken Remember mm. there was some fried chicken In that scene too Hercules, huh? Hercules oh, yeah. I lived yeah.
1: on Clump Avenue For a bunch of years I
3: remember <laughs> oh, Yeah, it of course <laughs> yeah. And that's what you said. There's that picture of you and your family uh, on the The White Clumps. uh, The White (laughs) Clumps. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
2: Fly from your grave. Are you hiring? What type of role are you hiring for? Maybe you need to hire someone to wear many hats, which can be challenging. Or you might have a simple position to fill, but it's taking forever to find someone who's a great fit for your company. Whether you need to hire a civil engineer in New York, an attorney in Colorado, a pediatric nurse in Nebraska, or even a mascot in Missouri, ZipRecruiter can help you find qualified candidates fast. And now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com L-P-O-T-L. From accountant to zoologist and everything in between, ZipRecruiter's matching technology finds people with the right experience for your job and presents them to you. And then you can invite your top choices to apply. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. We've loved our experience with ZipRecruiter. We have hired valuable employees that keep our company running like Fernando. Try it now for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com L-P-O-T-L. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash L-P-O-T-L. ZipRecruiter. The smartest way to hire.
0: Hey there, podcast listener. Have you ever been listening to Wizard and the Bruiser and thought to yourself... I wish I could see just how fat Jake and Holden are in real life. Don't lie. We know all about your weird inside thoughts, listeners. Well, now you can make that dream a reality because Whizbrew and Page 7 are going on tour. Austin, Dallas, Milwaukee, Chicago, Minneapolis, D.C., Philly, Brooklyn, San Francisco, L.A. Nowhere is safe from an all-new show we're calling Release the Butthole Cut. Ew. Come join your fellow LPN fans for a night of pop culture chaos that's fun for the whole family. Assuming your family consists of equally broken weirdos in their 30s. It's going to be a blast. Tickets are on sale right now at lastpodcastnetwork.com. Go, go now! There's VIP meet and greet passes available as well in case you want to get, you know, a little extra close. uh, Especially personal. I legally have to clarify that there is no sexual element involved. I mean, unless, you know. Okay, jeez, Jake. All right, stop winking. All right, buddy? It's page seven in Wizard and the Bruiser live. Go to LastPodcastNetwork.com for dates and tickets. Last
1: Podcast on the left is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Thanks, Squarespace. With Squarespace, it's easy to create a beautiful website. All on your own terms. Don't let anybody tell you what's new. This ain't your mama's website platform. It is actually. It's actually be very easy for your mother to learn. You don't want to miss Fluid Engine. It's a next generation website design system from Squarespace with reimagined drag and drop technology for desktop or mobile. I thought it was just the name of what my blood pressure medication turned me into. I'm peeing. Now, my goals for the year are I have two warehouses. with Squarespace. Go head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain, squarespace.com.
3: Well, Parsons, he wasn't the only person to drop out of high school. Edward Foreman had actually dropped out a couple of years before, and he'd just been working odd jobs ever since. So They got back together, and when the two of them weren't working their day jobs, they were continuing highly dangerous rocket experiments. So fun. Parsons took care of the science. He was completely self-taught. Foreman acted as the engineer, what he learned from his dad. And Foreman was the one who actually built the shit that Parsons was dreaming up. Wow! And after destroying Foreman's backyard with near-constant small-scale explosions— they began conducting their experiments in the deserts of California, where Parsons would also conduct magical experiments years later. Wow, now that I think about it, he's more like Pugsley from the Adams Family.
1: Yeah! He's, you know,
2: okay. He's a bit of a pug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well,
3: meanwhile, Parsons was advancing at the Hercules Powder Company at his own peril, because on average, at least one worker died per yeah, year man. due to accidental yes. explosion at their plant in Pinole.
1: It's so fucking cool. I,
3: I thought that might be higher. I thought that
2: number might be higher.
3: One yeah. per year.
1: That's yeah. not so it's, bad. It's just crazy to work at a places where just shit would just explode. They would just yeah. be like, "Well, here goes Jerry," and then just move on. <laughs> they just <go> to the- <laughs>
3: no. Well, it's on average one worker per year. So that means that like you might have you might go like two years without losing anybody, and then you lose five all at once. Five. Right. Yeah, yeah, we- right. But soon enough. Foreman also took an apprenticeship at the Hercules Powder Company, and it finally gave both of them access to high-grade explosives and materials. Parsons and Foreman also began to discover that they weren't the only ones obsessed with rocketry. Hmm. Another group of rocket aficionados named the International Planetary Society had almost launched a seven-foot-tall rocket using something other than black powder, As a propulsion system, because everyone was using black powder at that time for rockets. Mm. Now, granted, one of the members of the IPS had been engulfed in flames when he ignited their (laughs) experimental rocket by hand.
1: This (laughs) is a part of it. This is what you it's what it's a part of the experience.
3: Yeah. But nevertheless, (laughs) Parsons and Foreman figured they could improve on the system.
1: Because again, if you're starting that everybody's on fire, all you need to do is improve. Anything's going to improve. Absolutely.
2: And they
3: began work on what would change rocketry and therefore the world forever. Liquid rocket fuel.
2: Whoa. That's what Kissel's drinking right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's for my rock star lifestyle. Here I am sitting.
3: Sitting. Have you, yeah, have, <laughs> have you been drinking that rock star reserve, Ben? No, mm. I haven't. I don't, I don't
2: touch the it's stuff.
3: It's aged. <laughs> it's aged
1: 15 years. <laughs> yeah. The
2: doctor says if I have one more sip of that, I'm going to die.
1: <laughs> Did you guys have um rocket clubs at high school in high school? Because I remember the rocket clubs, like they were not cool like I, this. They were like a step above the horse people.
3: I uh built rockets when I, by, by me uh, by myself. I, I built rockets it. when I was. I saw was a kid. that in you. Yeah. Yeah. you saw, oh, yeah. I saw through you. Yeah, mm-hmm. me and my dad would build them sometimes. I would build them sometimes myself. I, 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 there was one other friend who would build rockets with me. But yeah, dude, I was way into model rockets, and I could get those fuckers to launch pretty high. Sometimes they would explode on the ground, though. I did explode a couple on the ground, but yeah, I we should do it rockets. again, Marcus.
1: We we, we let's can. Do fucking, let's do fucking rockets.
3: <laughs> mm, that's a great idea. That's a great yeah. idea. You're yeah, okay, end we'll up do like,
1: rockets.
2: Uh, Pierre yeah. Paul, you're gonna blow your freaking hand off, and then it'll be awesome. It'll be, yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll
1: be
3: cool. cool. I'll have claws. Yeah, yeah. As, you'll be as great long as with we don't, claws. As long as we don't blow out our throats, we'll be fine. Yeah, mm, that's the perfect. problem. That's yeah. a great idea, guys. Now, when it came to the world of science at this point in history, the focal point for the most exciting, revolutionary, and dangerous stuff was happening at Caltech in Pasadena, the hometown of Jack Parsons. Hmm. See, while Caltech... Had Edwin Hubble working on telescopes, Thomas Morgan developing chromosome theory, Carl Anderson discovering the positron, and Charles Richter inventing the Richter scale all at the same fucking time in the same place. It also had Albert Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer, whose respective works would lead to the creation of the atomic bomb.
1: Yeah, but then Cal State had the guy that invented Dutch oven, which is when you fart underneath the (laughs) blankets and then you stick your partner's head underneath it.
3: So it's just just as good as Caltech. UCLA had O.J. Simpson.
2: There you go. Fantastic. That's great.
3: Interestingly, though, Caltech was founded by a man who was already mixing science with mysticism long before Jack Parsons had done so. Astrophysics professor Gregory Hale. Built lodging for other astronomers that could only be accessed by a nine mile hike. And he named this place the Monastery. Some good,
1: they're all oh. kind of like this because Oppenheimer also was kind of mystical, too. Oh, he also yeah. got, he got when weird. When we do our thing it. on
3: the Manhattan Project, we're going to get into Oppenheimer's real weird mystical shit. Yeah. The Monastery, adorned with Egyptian symbols, it became the location of monastic rituals led by George Hale himself. And without knowing any of this, Caltech was where Parsons showed up at the age of 20 looking for like minds. And his confidence was so much, he showed up at 20 years old as a high school dropout.
1: He just rolled up. Yep. He literally you just showed it. up and I'm like, and I'm your rocket guy, which is still how my mom thinks show business works. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. You just go walk in. Yeah. Henry Thomas, have you thought about doing a show? you thought about no, doing Mom. a TV show? No, <laughs> no, Mom, I fucking haven't, not once. Maybe you should
1: do something on Broadway. <laughs> I, I, you know what? No, I refuse.
3: <laughs> it's hard work. See, Parsons and Foreman have been drawn to Caltech by an article that discussed the possibility of using rockets to power aircraft, what we call jet engines. Eventually, they were put into contact with a student named Frank Molina, who was just as obsessed with rocketry as Parsons and Foreman were. Together, these three would convince Caltech to give them meager funding, eventually, to begin work on rocketry, despite the fact that neither Parsons nor Foreman were students at Caltech. Mm -hmm. Soon enough, they were developing some of the earliest liquid-fueled rocket engines. Wow. These
1: are children with no training.
3: And no education.
1: They just started doing it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Now, at this point, most scientists at Caltech thought that rockets were, quote, as I said, something to be left to the comic books. But the one person who was forward thinking enough to give our boys a chance was a scientist archetype named Theodore von Karman.
1: It's Doc, it's Doc Brown.
3: Yeah,
1: <laughs> He is yes. Doc Brown.
3: Yeah, Dr. Theodore von Karman. He was a beret-wearing, absent-minded professor with a thick Bavarian accent who had a reputation for romancing the wives of his students and hosting parties with his sister where both of them would wear Japanese kimonos for no discernible reason.
1: We are being fun and eclectic. That is why we press breasts. Me and sister press breasts to, to, to congratulate
2: ourselves on being related. Hey, bro, You first of all, you fucked my wife and then you gave me a C on this paper. If you're going to fuck yeah. my wife, can you at least give me an A? No, nah, because she was bad
1: at it. I was raging to sex. And- oh,
3: man. This is horrible. <laughs> no, he was uh, actually, he was famous for giving, I think he was the one who was famous for giving lectures in German. He would give the first half of the lecture in German, not realizing that nobody in his class spoke German. And then he would realize, oh, fuck, I'm supposed to be giving this in English. But he wouldn't start over. He'd just do the rest of the lecture in English (laughs) and
2: expect you to figure out
3: what the first half of the lecture was about.
2: Well, there's some hints in there. Used to be a freer country. (laughs) I guess so, my (laughs) snuggle.
3: But what Carmen is best known for is his work in keeping bridges from... (laughs) My snuggle. <laughs> My, okay. snuggles. Mm. My snuggles. My uh, snuggles. I
1: can see him writing it in the fucking yeah, oh, like, <laughs> yeah I got it. It's writing it inside of a kennel. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like Aww. like in dog jail. Yeah. But,
3: but, but what Carmen is best known for is his work in keeping bridges from collapsing as oh. often as they used to. Good. Particularly after the nineteen forty Tacoma Narrows bridge disaster that occurred just after the bridge experienced its first light gale of wind. Oh. Ooh. Surprisingly, the only fatality in this collapse was a Cocker Spaniel named Tubby. Oh, <laughs> no! What happened? Why was Tubby on the bridge? But Tubby was in somebody's... He was in his owner's car, and the owner got out. Tubby couldn't get out because Tubby was Tubby. Uh, <laughs> and there was a photojournalist and a professor named Farquaad Harson who tried rescuing Tubby, but eventually the car started ah. sliding... <laughs>
1: These mind mine struggles. Aww. These are mine struggles.
2: Tubby. Well, you know,
3: that's Tubby right. tragically plunged to his doom, and the owner was compensated $7,000 in today's really? money for the Whoa. loss of Tubby.
2: That's it's just, nice. It's better than they do now. Now they just blame us for being too fat for the bridge. Probably <laughs> charges money. <laughs>
3: Now, Dr. Von Karman was able to fix. Actually, I think he was a professor, Professor Von Karman. Ooh. And Professor Von Karman was able to fix these failures of bridge design because he was in charge of the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory at Caltech, named GALCIT for short. And using
1: gal, It might be Galkit because depending on how you get into Caltech, I don't know. Let me talk about this. Galkit. It's Cal is it's like gal C. It's a hard C. I like, but the, I like said, the
2: soft C. C. Gal yeah,
1: because Galsit sounds like you're patting your knee looking at a woman from across the bar. Sure.
3: Galsit. Gal but Gal Kit sounds awful. I don't like mm-hmm. Galkit. I don't know no. why, but you're I don't.
1: Right. You're the author.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <We're> <laughs> using Galsit's wind tunnel, Von Karman was able to create new ways of designing bridges that wouldn't collapse in strong winds. Oh, that's great. Hmm. Galsit was also where Jack Parsons, Edward Foreman, and their new crew member, Frank Molina, took their rocket proposal. And while Theodore von Karman was unable to give them any funds, he allowed them to use Galsett's facilities even though only one of them was actually a student at Caltech and only one of them. He was not only the only student, he was the only one with a high school diploma. Okay. Yeah, dude. Now, during the time that Parsons was doing all the DIY work that was impressive enough to gain him free access to high-tech collegiate facilities, he was also certainly no monk. When it came to the ladies, no, oh. dude,
1: he oh, he had this prepackaged. There's something about nerds. Yeah. some of these yeah. guys, it's like they figure it out because he was horny, horny, horny. So well, he like lost the baby he was fat.
3: Out. He lost, he lost yeah. the baby fat. He had like a sort. He had eraser head hair, but he fucking rocked it. It looked cool. He, he looked cool, cool. Yeah, he looked. Very he was cool. handsome. he, always, like, he, he was, was handsome. Always, he was daring. Yeah, he was always uh, immaculately dressed. He would wear it. No one ever saw him with while without wearing a vest. Like, dude had a fucking style um, going. Oh, okay. apparently though that he did have a sweating
1: issue. This yes. is true. Yeah, he had a sweating issue, and he was like holding McNeely. Where yeah. it's like, if you ever see him in anything above sixty seven degrees, he's sopping wet. Yeah, and he was mm-hmm. kind of like that. But some girls like that.
2: Some girls like that absolutely so then he's not like Prince Andrew the way that you classified him as uh, earlier although we have learned from people who knew Prince Andrew that he does sweat
3: yeah of course yeah yeah well uh, Jack Parsons also he would sweat a lot but he also what he would do he was one of those guys that thought he could hide it with cologne but it just mixed you know that like cologne BO mix that's just Mm, highly unpleasant Uber
2: driver (laughs) <laughs> That's a not so bad. <laughs> not so bad. Well, in
3: 1933, two years before Parsons gained access to Galset, he met his future wife and one of his future partners in magic, Helen Northrop. Ironically, at a Christmas dance at a Baptist church, hmm. but she was the right woman, man. Sometimes oh, yeah. you just know because she was just as freaky as him. Okay. Mm-hmm. See, while Parsons had been raised with no strong religious affiliation, Helen had grown up. Half witchy and half Christian. Very common. Her family had moved to Pasadena after her mother chose the location through the use of a Ouija board. But her stepfather, a strict Baptist, only allowed Helen to attend extracurricular activities at the Baptist church when she came of age. This was where she met Jack Parsons. And Helen's strict Christian stepfather encouraged a relationship with this handsome young scientist, not knowing. That this same young man had attempted to summon the devil in his bedroom when he was a child.
2: It was a fiasco. Yeah, it was a goddamn it fiasco. It's a fiasco.
3: But even though Parsons was a good looking dude who was immaculately dressed at all times, he was still a scientist and he courted Helen like a scientist.
1: I would put him in the, he's in the Egon Spengler yeah. realm of scientist, where he was. A, a, how do you put it? There's something about he him being, m- he, he collects mold, spores, and fungus. <laughs> yes, but there's something uniquely charismatic about him where people were kind of like... Because, again, it shows, and this is for everybody out there, that, like, you know, where's your person then? Stuff like that. When you are enveloped so deeply in your interests, in interest, and your specific interests, people are passion. attracted to it. And your passion. Like, if you're passionate about something, people are really... And that's what he was. He was a true believer when it came to science. mm
3: mm-hmm. One night, he took Helen on a date and invited his buddy, Edward Foreman, along. But after Parsons spent hours talking to Foreman about rockets instead of paying the least bit of attention to his date, she left without telling him, and neither man noticed. (laughs) But the relationship continued, and since both Jack and Helen were becoming increasingly witchy, she and Parsons would attempt to communicate telepathically when they were apart, both tuning in at 9 p.m. each night because they couldn't afford long-distance phone calls.
1: That's kind of romantic. Yeah. That's a fun idea. It's a idea. That's It's the Fievel thing.
2: Yeah. It, it's a little bit like that. The conversation was probably pretty good, because he was just having it with himself. So he was probably just like, <laughs> oh, you want to suck <laughs> my dick could, again? Oh, my God. And I then mean, she was oh, just like, yeah, oh, you want to like like buy d- me another car? You want to buy me more <laughs> stuff? Sweet.
1: Honestly, be nice. Show your tits <laughs> to the moon thinking about your boyfriend. Sometimes he'll think about
2: him. You Mm -hmm. never know. You never know.
1: Somewhere out (laughs) there. And you just show your pussy to the sky.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But since they seemed to be well-matched in all the ways that mattered, Parsons proposed to Helen a year later with a three-carat diamond ring and a 25 caliber pistol. Cool. Okay. And he was so absent-minded at their wedding in 1935 that he forgot to kiss her at the end of the ceremony.
1: Oh, my God. He's a bumbling scientist. (laughs)
2: He really is. How'd he forget to kiss her? The guy, he's like, you got to kiss her.
1: He's just all like, he's all hubbub because everyone's going, everybody's on fire. You know, like, God knows what's happening. Like, explosions (laughs) are just going off.
3: Well, eventually, Jack and Helen settled down in Pasadena where Parsons got a day job at the Halifax Powder Company because apparently California was fucking full of dynamite factories at this point in time. Sure. But since they were now permanently in Pasadena, Parsons could devote even more time to his rocketry work at Galsett But since Parsons' entire life was explosives and propulsion at this point, he spent all the money he made on rockets and rocket accessories. And Helen was in a constant battle with her husband just to meet the basic cost of living because he spent all their fucking money on rockets. Hmm.
1: Literal, like, he would have been in another world. He sounds like Timothy McVeigh. Like, this is a more, (laughs) quote-unquote, like, innocent time where Mm -hmm. it was like they would literally eat on barrels of dynamite. Like there yeah. was shit, like their home was filled
2: with explosive material. That's yeah, kind it. of fun though, isn't it?
3: Yeah. I mean Parson I mean at one point, like his wife is in the back of his car and she just discovered loose sticks of dynamite back yeah, there. Just hanging out. Just casually tossed like so many half-eaten dollar menu cheeseburgers. Oh, wow. There's where those
1: were. <laughs> oh I was looking for those. <laughs>
3: Another time, Parsons was working in the makeshift explosives lab on the back porch of the home he and Helen shared when he got a call that his grandmother was being rushed to the hospital but at the same time, he was heating up a large vat of explosives. You really so don't he, want to
2: be startled at this point. <laughs> yeah, Oh, yeah.
3: So he handed a spatula to Helen and told her to keep stirring and under no circumstances stop until he came back. Presumably <laughs> oh, without telling her what would happen if she stopped. You want me to get your coffee, too? Or you
1: just keep stirring. <laughs> Honestly, don't keep look at me. Stirring. Just keep stirring.
3: However, even though Parsons could be thoughtless, he was also generous and good-natured. He was prone to adopting stray animals. He had a little owl that he adopted, (laughs) and he eventually domesticated it, and he had a pet owl that would hang around. That's cool, man. I want an owl, dude. Yeah. And this, of course, extended to stray people as well, and Parsons usually left Helen to be the villain who had to kick these dudes out of their house.
1: Yeah, and that would be a running theme.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. But while Parsons was spending all his money on rockets and rocket accessories, he and his partner spent what little time off they had from their day jobs scrounging Southern California for spare parts. Eventually, they had enough to complete their first rocket, and they chose Halloween 1936 as the date of their first test.
2: Well, that's kind of romantic. They're little little treasure hunters together. Isn't that nice? They're scavengers.
1: Scavengers. It's like Borderlands. Yeah. It's to build a giant bomb. So it's fun. It's awesome. It's not a bomb. It's a rocket. Well, it's a, let's just say at the time, it's a bomb in a tube.
2: It could could become a bomb. From a bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Make anything a bomb. I'll make it, i make a bomb right now. (laughs) You just
1: did. Yeah. Mm. So did you. Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs)
3: in a location in the northern area of the Arroyo Seco near Devil's Gate Dam the trio almost set themselves on fire in a failed launch yes they Hmm. did but 15 days later they tried again with greater success by January they'd gotten their rocket motor to fire long enough without exploding that they were allowed to come out of the desert to perform rocket motor tests on the Caltech campus albeit they but they did still have to do so Without funding,
1: hmm. yeah, just blowing his money, blowing yeah. whatever's left.
3: Well, they had to pawn Helen's engagement ring. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: And they got Helen to request ga- and they got Helen to request cash advances from her job so they could pay for rocket parts. Okay. Cool ass wife. Yeah, yeah. cool ass wife. Well, eventually she did become sick enough of being mm. their bankroll that she made Parsons and Foreman dust and sweep her entire house before she would give them five bucks. For a rocket part, well, there um, you go. That's yeah. good.
1: Yeah, j- j- just get um, even. When and you out tell Egon bit. Spengler, when you tell Egon Spengler that he has to mop the house to do, you know you're also you're not getting a great job. Yeah. That's the problem too. Is that you know that they're all like talking, they're barely doing it, and you're just like, yeah. all right, here's your fucking five dollars. Like, mm-hmm. thank you for the attempt.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: But as Parsons, Foreman, and Molina began their work on campus, they picked up another crew member, a Chinese graduate student named Qian Chu Sen. I believe it's Chian Su. Yeah. Chian Su oh, yeah, Sen. Yeah. yeah. And the rocket research group was officially recognized by Galsett as a fully financed project. Whoa. So now that Chian was a part of the group and money was coming into play, Parsons could now pull off bigger and therefore more dangerous experiments. And their reputation for playing with fire in very public ways earned them a nickname on campus. Soon they were being called. The Suicide Squad.
1: Whoa, that's amazing. It's fun, as, amazing. Hell. It's fun <laughs> as hell. They were, they were legitimately a dangerous group of people to bear. Yeah. And in not even wife? in a bad way. It was just the in the honest name. There's just something about it. I love that idea. Like the honest name of science. Just mm-hmm. being like, we're blowing shit up today. And they go outside and they just like, Strap a bomb to it, see what happens. And they're all like watching with binoculars while things just explode all around them. It was very dangerous.
3: Mm-hmm. Suicide squad. In their first big fuck up, they managed to kill all the grass on the front lawn of the chemistry building with an experimental liquid that exuded highly toxic and potentially fatal vapors. Hmm, okay. I just love when cartoon characters are real. Yeah. That's what <laughs> I love about it. The thing about
1: history is that certain things pop up and you wonder where they come from. And you're like, just this idea that they were all like these bumbling, mad scientists. I and mean, That's mm-hmm. all real.
3: In another fuck up, they tested a rocket in the staircase of the Galsett building. And that rocket, of course, malfunctioned. And it spread a corrosive fog that left a layer of rust on every metal surface, which the rocketeers had to scrub off while the faculty and the janitorial staff stared them down. Oh, wow. Other times, members of the suicide squad would just lightly blow themselves up. And when someone heard any sort of loud pop on campus, they'd run to their window to see if one of the squad had accidentally killed themselves. Hmm. But so most of the time, they'd actually, they would literally see them lying on the grass, like blackened and charred like Wiley Coyote. That's awesome.
2: That's That's a great day to be in college.
3: Yeah, because they'd blow themselves out of rooms through windows. Yeah. Like I, through
2: windows and shit. And then like <laughs> and that's just the power of being like
1: twenty, where you yeah. can get up and be like, woo, like you Whoa. know, like, with the goggles on with your hair sticking up and like it's cool. We're like, I can't get out of this chair right now.
2: No, yeah. not too quickly. You know? Absolutely. Well, these guys said what a crazy time for college kids, huh? We had nine eleven. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I guess we saw a little bit mm-hmm. more than
3: uh, a bit of a rocketry
2: crazy. experiment in and of itself. Yeah. <laughs>
3: But interestingly, the Suicide Squad, and particularly Jack Parsons' expertise in explosives, would have real-world consequences in the world of true crime and civic corruption. This story is amazing. In the 1930s, Los Angeles was under the thumb of a corrupt mayor named Frank Shaw. Shaw was under investigation by an anti-corruption advocate named Cliff Clinton, and Clinton had tapped an LAPD officer named Harry Raymond to investigate. In the middle of the investigation, though, Raymond got in his car, turned the key, and was damn near killed by a car bomb.
1: No! No okay. man, this is like, that's good 1930s juice. It's yeah. crazy.
3: Now, all signs pointed towards police chief Earl Kynette as being behind the assassination attempt, because Kynette was not only a well-known crony of Mayor Shaw... But he had also been found with a garage full of materials that had probably been used to construct a car bomb.
1: No, no, what? no, no. no this is a- my collection. It's just a yeah. collection of dynamite <laughs> and bomb <laughs> material. It's a collection. I,
3: do I need to arrest you? Because <laughs> oh, wow. I can't. I am literally the police chief. Yeah. I mean, it's, cir- it's possibly circumstantial. So... Sure. To prove that those materials could, in fact, be the same that were used in the attempted murder of Harry Raymond, the prosecution went to Caltech and asked, hey, you got anybody that can do- explain this to us? And they said, fuck yeah, send in Jack Parsons.
2: Send in the wow. Suicide Squad.
3: Yeah. Parsons was easily able to build the exact same bomb the police chief had built by extrapolating from the materials found in the garage. And he even took the jury out to a testing site to use the car bomb to blow up a car.
1: So fucking, this is all nerd boners across the fucking board.
2: And just so you know, I'm being 100% accurate with this. As you can see, this bottle of scotch is half gone because I know for a fact <laughs> that sheriff did this well, well intoxicated. And now let's test the bomb.
1: It's You know, cause again, he, one thing about Jack Parsons, as you'll see is that he did like attention. Like mm-hmm. there, he did like it. There was a showman aspect Which is where I think the magical shit really comes in.
2: I think people who explode things for for fun often like attention.
3: I think so. (laughs) (laughs) And when the damage in the test was found to be nearly identical to the damage to Raymond's car, Chief Kynette was sent to jail. That was all Jack Parsons. Now around this time, possibly boosted by his own slight celebrity, Jack Parsons began to build himself into a bit of a legend. To promote his group's ideals of rocketry and to gain additional funding, Parsons began to work on a novel that he planned to sell to MGM Studios for an adaptation, a story of espionage, murder, and organized labor.
1: That was back when the Union movie was big. But then the problem is that you also then get investigated for your politics really hard during the time period, too, if you're super pro-union.
2: Yeah, as opposed to now, where everything is so pure mm, and clear. Yes. Uh, but it's just so cute. He was like, I wrote a screenplay. I didn't intend to sell it to MGM, uh, not realizing that they just say no.
1: Dude, <laughs> though, this is back in the day, though. You can really, like, if you had it, there was an interest, because he was becoming a public figure, and everyone was interested in this stuff. But it was also, like, more like, uh, you were seeing the play of imagination yeah and it would come up a lot. It would come like the they, these guys were all selling scripts, like because yeah. Molina too was trying to sell a script
3: well the hero, Franklin Hamilton, is pretty much Jack Parsons oh. and the other members of the suicide squad were turned into characters that were also based on their personalities. There was Lin Lao, a man torn between returning to China or working on rockets in America. Ooh, there was damn. Thomas L. Quude, a union organizer with a deep hatred for Nazis.
1: I hate the Nazis! Stole awesome. my ice cream! What?
3: Whoa! And then my favorite was a defrocked Franciscan monk named Theophile Belvedere. That sounds like one of my d and uh, character belts.
2: Theophile. Oh, my.
3: But what's interesting about Theophile Belvedere in particular is that the character had an extreme interest in the Kabbalah, which, magical students know, is the ancient Jewish mystical tradition that is the foundation of most right-hand magical practices.
1: Hmm. Now, he was, uh, he based that character off of himself. Like, yeah. that was him saying he was already getting involved in this stuff because he just ran across this writings, like, he's, he ran across this on accident.
3: hmm Well, it was around this time that Jack Parsons also found a book called Conks Om Pax. Written in 1907. Filled with quotes from Sappho, the Quran, and Dante, Conx Om Pax was a sort of puzzle book of the occult. It spoke of mystics, demons, and magic, and it was written in such a complicated and Byzantine style that it reminded Jack Parsons of the technical aspects of rocketry, which mm. were themselves still being written. And as it turned out, the author of Conx Om Pax was none other than Alistair Crowley. Whoa.
2: <laughs> Get into my ass. I do think that the conch would probably be Aleister Crowley's favorite kind of shellfish because it does well, look like a
3: penis. And a butthole at the same time. And a butthole. You're right. And kind of a vagina now that I think about it. You're correct because the butthole is actually
1: also a symbol of the sun. The butthole and the vagina are just symbols of the sun and the moon. And Conk's Om Pax is also a conch's Om Pax is also a reiteration of LVX, which is Luke's, which is a part of the Luke's formula. This concept that you learn as you go through the OTO, it's kind of, it's a, it's a working formula. It's very complicated, but Conk's Om Pax was actually a book that Alistair Crowley wrote as sort of a child's invitation. This is one interpretation of it as a child's, a re- invitation to the occult. So he wrote these stories for his daughter. And as soon as you read them, because I've been half sick with fucking like this whole week and trying to understand it again, because you forget it's layers of layers of, of allegory that you kind of have to cross check references as you go, because that's how Alistair Crowley liked to write. It was, a, it was poetry to be worked on. And he was immediately interested in this many layers because that's what's interesting. It's interesting to a nerd. You can see yeah. why ritual reaction, ritual magic is really interesting to born nerds. Because you are a, it's a puzzle. It just laps mm. on, on your lap. And you kind of, like, the more you read it, which is, I don't know how, the, I don't know if it's like how when I was reading Dianetics and by like hour 10 of it, it starts to make sense mm. when it shouldn't. You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know whether, what, it, and that's kind of how, this book is as well. Like I was pouring over it for like four hours and eventually you're like, Oh, that's interesting. It's allegory. It's like, he talks about, he basically writes a children's tale that tells the, the, how you go through the various degrees in
2: AA, which is his version of like the OTO. You know, it's interesting. No, right. I like also, it. Henry, Henry, I wouldn't, uh, I don't want, I want to recommend a uh, diet netics <laughs> for you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Uh, And that's called
1: bomb
2: experimenting Again, it's another That's a a rocket ship to the moon right there, buddy (laughs) Dianetics
3: Well, I think part of the reason why that shit starts to make sense after about 10 hours I think the whole point of it, not the whole point of it, but I think part of the intellectual exercise of it Is that you just read this shit until your brain figures out a way to make it make sense to you Like it's a meditation and eventually you can find you can figure out the puzzle, but it's what the puzzle means to you rather than what the puzzle means to everyone. And that's Aleister Crowley in particular. It's all about the personal.
1: And there's something about that that speaks to someone who is independently driven. And they're like and I think there is about because it is referenced to many. There's many. Like stories and myths that are attached to it, especially like the Aleusian myths and all this stuff. It's like kind of layered within it. and you you get to see what he it's all references. so again, mm-hmm. it's 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 why I love a book that has a map in the front of it. <laughs> you know,
2: fly from your grave.
0: Hi, I'm Jackie Zabrowski. And I'm MJ. And I'm Holden from the Page 7 Podcast, and we're going on... Tour! That's right, we're touring all up in this mother-freaking country. I'm oh, fake cursing, so whatever, Jackie. Just say the filthy F-word already. And we will say the filthy F-word when we come to your town. That's right, we're coming to Texas, the Midwest, the Northeast, and then right back here in Cali, baby. For ticket links and more details, visit LastPodcastNetwork.com. That's right, LastPodcastNetwork.com. Hey, Age 7 and Wizard and the Bruiser present Release Release the Butthole Cut. Wait, that's really what we're calling the tour? Absolutely. Release the Butthole Cut. For more information, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.
3: Now, Jack Parsons and his wife were at this time swinging in unconventional intellectual circles. And in 1939, based on Parsons' budding interest in Crowley's work, they were invited to an event by some friends of theirs, a pair of gay siblings named John and Frances Baxter. Mm. The event in question was a Gnostic Mass for the Church of Thelema, and the group hosting the event was the Ordo Templi Orientis, Mm -hmm. better known as the OTO. Specifically, Parsons had stumbled upon the Agape Lodge, which had been founded by Aleister Crowley himself over 20 years before.
1: Well, you wanted to start it, but if you remember from the Alistair Crowley episodes, which you should listen to, if you want to know how, if you want to catch up to this series, you should listen to the Aleister Crowley episodes and the L. Ron Hubbard episodes to kind of see how we got here. But he tried to go to L.A., but it was too hot. <laughs> it was too hot. <laughs> and then he Physically left. hot? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Aleister Crowley did not enjoy the temperature of L.A. <laughs> he couldn't handle it. Remember, he was very idiot. British. I could see that. He's, he wears a lot of layers. Mm -hmm. I really feel that Aleister Crowley could have succeeded farther in life if he had been around for the invention of Gold Bond. Yeah, (laughs) I think it is very difficult for him.
2: Air conditioning may have done him well.
3: Parsons, when he attended this event, he was, of course, attracted to the quasi-Masonic gestures of the rituals that he witnessed. But what really caught his attention was something new. Sex magic. Oh yeah. Buddy. There's just ooh, something yeah. about it, babe.
2: I don't know what it could be. but something about. I don't know. It's, I think it's <laughs> sex magic. I think it's <laughs> so so, like-
1: I think it's that there's breasts in here. Did you go in? Because the Gnostic Mass, he he's went to see the Gnostic Mass, which is very long. Mm-hmm. It is a it's a it's an hour and a half long thing. Did you go to? But it's got a lot of titties and it's yeah. a lot of like sticking swords and cups and all this kind of stuff. It's very horny feeling mm-hmm. and
3: you're like, ooh, it's fun. You got the robes and shit. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He saw a priestess stroke the lance of a priest, which was followed by the priest kissing the priestess between her breasts Mm. while lavishly sensual declarations were made.
2: I'm happy my priest didn't do any of that, man. He was was (laughs) nasty looking. He kissed me between my breasts but yeah. do do? He mm. was surprised what he found there It was a little mm.
1: boy's
3: heart mm. I love you <laughs> I here's, some nice. of the, here's some of those Lavishly sensual declarations
1: I love you <laughs> I yearn to you Pale or purple Veiled or voluptuous I who am all pleasure and purple And drunkenness <laughs> Of the innermost sense I desire you Burn to me perfumes, wear to me jewels, drink to me. I am the blue-lidded daughter of sunset. I, thought he was purple. I am the naked brilliance of the voluptuous night sky to me, to me.
3: God well, damn it. All right. He's go. reading it like a garbage man. <laughs> well, I mean, why not? Because There's nothing. I'm garbage trying to the show you. Yeah.
1: They're allowed to be sensual because when yes, it comes down course. to it, it can't, it's like, yeah, obviously, though. Well, in the intent, yes, you're supposed intent. to read it very horny. You're supposed Damn. to be, you know or I purple, to
3: you. veiled or voluptuous, I from oh. all pleasure and purple and drunkenness of me. the innermost sense desire. You. All right, I don't oh. want to hear any more to of this perfumes, from you, Marcus. <laughs> I like the way Henry jewels. did it. Hey, to me. It's I working. am the blue little daughter of sunset. Oh. I am the naked brilliance of the voluptuous night
2: sky. All right, save it. To save me. it for the wives, guys. Come on. To me. I'm having one. Oh, no. <laughs> God dang it. He's
1: fucking me. Kissel,
2: he's I, fucking I, me. I understand what's happening, and I'm sure someone already has fan fiction about that. As, in, I know for a fact they do. We read it.
3: The shit like this was catnip to a romantic intellectual like Jack Parsons, who was coming closer and closer to looking at magic the same way he looked at rocketry. In fact, he rolled with everything at that first mass, including the partaking of the infamous Cakes of Light. Mm. Oh yeah. Now, if you'll remember, cakes of light were perversions of communion wafers that were typically baked with minstrel blood or semen. Depending. Oh, oh, interesting. Oh, good. Mm. <laughs> What's in this?
1: <laughs> See, I actually find it interesting because now that we we call it perversions of the communion, but actually, to when I'm starting to understand upon this layer of reading it, because every single time I come back to Crowley and magic, and I'm back into it, reading it again. You start to understand it's not perversions, it's dilutions. It's Mm. actually going back to the essential. Instead of, like, because in transubstantiation, right, if you do believe in the Catholic rite of mass, is that you believe it is magically turning into human blood. Mm -hmm. This is actually just cutting out the middleman of your imagination and going straight to, no, we put the blood in it because the blood is the very creative force
2: of human life. Mm.
1: Fuck you both. Look at a me. Look at a me like I'm fucking nuts. Well, you are. You're, You're trapped in here with me.
2: You are <laughs> screaming things that a, a crazy person would scream. I've been two. drinking a
1: lot of coffee. I've got a lot of Springle Jack coffee.
2: That's yes. That's why I like the original Jagermeister. There's real deer blood in it. Oh, really? Yeah. In the EOG. Yeah. Much like Coca Cola had cocaine, Jagermeister actually had deer blood in it for flavor. Mm. But then they came up with some other way to do the flavor that didn't involve deer blood. <laughs>
1: I can't wait to yell in the next two episodes. I'm just going to be yelling so much. And I am sorry for all of you. I just
3: need to be heard. Yeah. Good, good. Well, the cakes of light that Parsons ate were made with animal blood because presumably oh. no menstrual blood was available. What do you mean? It's hard to get. I guess no one was on their period. Just wait. You can't wait. I mean, you got a weekly just to save meeting. Save it in the fridge. It just it's, it's I what I guess do. maybe all the ladies were well, I know one of them was like, you know, postmenopausal. Uh all the other ladies <laughs> are might be all on the same cycle. They're all synced so yeah, up. I talk out. about it. I talk about it on the live show. They'll sync it up. No, then. we know. <laughs> we know. Well, Parsons gobbled these cakes of light up anyway, <laughs> right alongside his wife, Helen. Because Helen, mm. she showed up. She was all in as well. They were both oh, all yeah, in. They're born groovy. After the ceremony, the Baxters introduced Jack and Helen to the senior members of the Agape Lodge, who were not necessarily the movers and shakers that conspiracy theorists like to believe members of these organizations (laughs) to be.
1: Yeah, man. Magicians. What have we learned about magicians? They don't get a lot of concrete shit done, (laughs) Hmm. except they are also now it's also more like what is now also a shell for the CIA. But that comes up later on
3: there was Regina Call, an opera singer and drama teacher. You had Jane Wolfe, a former silent film actress in her 60s who'd lived at the infamous Abbey of Thelema in Sicily, where Crowley earned the title of the wickedest man in the world when he made a dude drink a goblet of cat blood that ended up killing him. Oh, he didn't have to. He
1: didn't have to. He made the choice. Well, sounds like he was pressured anyway. I mean, he was, you know, he did believe he was at the feet of one of the most powerful black sorcerers who ever lived. So you do feel pressure, but still.
3: Yeah. But the most consequential member Parsons met was Wilfred T. Smith. Although Wilfred T. Smith was not a consequential person outside of the Agape Lodge. Even though Smith had been a founding member with the blessing of Aleister Crowley himself, Wilfred was, by 1939, A 53-year-old clerk for the Southern California Gas Company who wore a ceremonial robe that he had made himself from a theater curtain. You are roasting
1: him. You are not your job. I'm not roasting him. He was a wizard first. (laughs) Wizard first? Oh
3: I didn't roast him at all. He worked for the gas company.
1: Hey, he was a wizard on the weekend. I know. It's like flatulence of the opera. (laughs) Yes, that (laughs) is funny. That is funny. That's good.
2: Flatulence.
3: But it was Wilfred Smith who invited Parsons to weekly Thelemic masses. And although Parsons was repulsed by Smith, he knew that this was his best chance to further explore the works and magic of Alistair Crowley from a person who knew the man himself. Now, in 1939, Alistair Crowley's reputation as the wickedest man in the world had long since passed him by. He was by this time a broke 64 year old heroin addict, described by novelist Anthony Powell as having mottled and porous yellow skin oh. with the features of, quote, a horrible baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, well, that is something. <laughs>
1: Technically, that is the magical rise and ascendance. Like, if you do look at the formula, sure. like, the actual, like, what the words of the, oh, God, I, I looked this up. Not Kongs on Pax, but their actual Godhead system. Technically, you go from baby to man to baby. So, oh. magically, he's correct.
2: He nailed it. All right. Well, maybe that's not what you should follow if it's, it made. It it's you gross. a big baby. He was
1: not taking care of himself. He should have.
3: Oh. Did he write the... Got baby, got baby man, baby thing. After he started looking like a big baby, you say right.
1: I say discovered magically, <laughs> and it, what what a coincidence it
2: was. What if I just say that's the whole point? You start baby, yeah, then you do man now, and baby again.
1: When you're the head of the religion, you make it.
2: You, you put, can do whatever you, you want. You are mm. the
1: godhead. Lrh looked in the mirror every day and being like, "I'm the scientist. I am the scientological ultimate." Congrats. I really, I think that he did it L- I think by that- himself.
2: I think that Hubbard looked in the mirror every day and was just like, oh, fuck. Fuck, fuck, fuck. No, dude, what no, What do I like, do? I got
1: this. Fuck. No, I there got There must this. have yeah. been I'm some make moments. shit up all day. <laughs>
3: all day. Fuck, 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 fuck. Uh, we were talking about this last night. L. Ron Hubbard, he's, I went back and, and read what we wrote last time. It's just his manic energy just fascinates me because he just never slows baby. down. He never slows Again. down, he never falsers, never rolling. trips always rolls it's a thing to
1: learn it's a thing to learn from because he just never got set back he just got in the boat he's like can't live on land anymore now we live in a boat there you go perfect
3: well at this point crowley was mostly concerned with heroin hours-long sessions of cunnilingus with sex workers in a vague attempt to try to get a boner again uh chess uh and going to the movies he loved them hey
1: man it's This ain't a bad life. (laughs) I mean, the (laughs)
3: heroin sounds pretty pretty
2: abysmal.
3: Yeah. He wrote in his diary his favorite movie at the time was A Night to Remember. It was a movie about the Titanic. He saw it four times. Oh. (sighs) But he hated the cartoons before the features. Mm -hmm. He described one Donald Duck cartoon as, quote, Sad. Sad. <laughs> I believe it.
1: But he didn't like Trump. It's, a tr- it's just sad. Sad. It. sad. Sad.
2: I'm sure sad. that it is. Low energy. Why do we want to remember the night the Titanic went down?
3: I don't know, it's, but I, well, adore, I adore that movie. Is it a good one? I yeah. never saw it. You never saw it's it, huh? It's interesting. It's a no. romantic
1: telling of the Titanic sinking. And no,
3: it's no, I mean the 1996 one. I, I, I love that movie. Oh,
2: Titanic. I've seen Titanic, that.
3: Titanic, yeah. Yeah, I love that movie.
2: Of course I've seen that.
3: Now, to give a brief (laughs) refresh,
2: young Leo (laughs) and
3: Kate Winslet. (laughs) Well, while Crowley's influence in Europe had waned, if not disappeared completely, he still held sway over the OTO Agape Lodge in Los Angeles. Now to give a brief refresher on what the OTO is, the Ordo Templi Orientis is a sex-based magical order that's basically, if I may simplify it, incredibly for the sake of all involved. Mm-hmm, thank you. It's a combination of Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn rituals and tantric yoga. Right? It's basically. I have that. an
1: actual intro. I have an intro prepared for next week. All right. That I'm going to bring in, but yes, you are not too long. Basically, it not is that the off. separation. It's a separation from the Golden Dawn that is basically about sex magic. Yeah. And then, so that is the, and it's continued to operate to this day. That is like the official, like the, the Aleister Crowley religion that then he would change, oh, he would basically take the stuff from the Golden Dawn. He would put Thelema into it and that's kind of where you get the OTO.
3: Well, founded by a German Freemason named Karl Kellner, who claimed that the key to opening all Masonic and Hermetic secrets was sex magic, the OTO prided itself on complete and total secrecy. Hmm. But when the second head of the OTO, Theodore Roos, read a book of magic by Aleister Crowley called The Book of Lies, he found that Crowley seemed to be publishing the innermost secrets of the OTO, namely that the key to magic was sex.
2: God damn it, I read this book, The Book of Lies, and it turns out it was full of fucking truth. I want a refund. Yeah,
3: that is <laughs> that is what
1: happened. And when he realized it was kind of distilling down all these allegorical stories that it's about the harnessing the creative power of life itself, yeah. which is what sex is supposed
3: to do. Yeah. Rude and stem, right? Rude and stem. Se- well, rude his, and stem. Yeah, rude and stem.
1: Chalice and sword. Yeah. They talk about the dualities.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the chalice and sword, yeah. But much to Ruiz's surprise, Crowley had come across the sex magic secrets of his order intuitively and independently. Hmm. Although, as we said in our Crowley series, Alistair was much more focused on the butthole than the OTO was prepared to accept, (laughs) at least at first. When he,
1: he took over, he fucking put it into overdrive because the final thing, I mean, obviously to gain the final steps of the OTO, it is sodomy on yourself, right? Like it is you get gaped. Right? that it's literally oh. insects and rockets. They said that literally, he put the gape in agape. That's like the thing that he does. <laughs> isn't like, that nice? Where it's like because like the eighth ritual literally is cum menstrual blood. You're supposed to rub it on your asshole and then you jerk off onto the
2: runes. And so it's like it's, wow. all, fun. it's yeah. all fun. Isn't that Isn't that creative?
3: Yeah. Well, it's gonna get it's gonna get weird if you have to keep escalating. It's gonna get weird eventually. Yes, but even so. Roos was so impressed with Crowley's understanding of sex magic that he made him head of the British OTO. Eventually, Crowley expanded the OTO by laying the foundations for the first OTO chapter in America, the Agape Lodge in Los Angeles.
2: May I just say, instead of being head of the OTO, can I be the butt of the OTO? <laughs> <laughs> he was like both. Duality. Oh, Girl.
3: Duality. And Crowley named the aforementioned Wilfred Smith as Magister Templi in 1950. Hmm. Now, back then, Crowley was high on the hog, as was Wilfred Smith. But by 1939, when Parsons came on the scene, Wilfred Smith was working for the gas company. What
2: is the hog? Is the hog heroin? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, now it was.
3: Uh, Well, at that point, Crowley, I mean, he was dead broke and he was trying to make money selling rejuvenation tonics that he made from his own jizz.
1: People see <laughs> hey man. well, it's it is interesting. we I think we talked about this when we did the Crowley did. episode about we how, did. like you just end in you just always end in supplements,
2: yeah, yeah, you really, I mean, I'm surprised he's not the next senator from Pennsylvania, <laughs>
3: <laughs> but even so, Crowley still held a lot of sway over the Agape Lodge, which is one of, if not his last bulwark of power. Hmm. But he'd hoped that the l a branch might attract bankers and captains of industry, really. <laughs> Anyone with money.
2: I mean, they do like to get gaped, to be fair. So, (laughs) I mean,
3: well, and again, it starts,
1: it's about the trappings. That's what people don't understand. It starts all nerdy, but with the Crowley world, you also get, get your Mm -hmm. dick sucked, Which is like, I do think that it is a, the sex magic, it is not, it is pleasurable for a reason. Mm -hmm. Like, it's both to attract you and because it is, it's nice. Yeah,
3: of course. But because the guy in charge worked for the gas company. Which is not, there's nothing wrong with working for the gas company. I,
2: I do feel like you're maligning this clerk for the gas company. He's, he's trying he's to only, remind the audience. He's the only normal person
1: so far. This is his active way to make sure he tells the audience what he feels about magicians, <laughs> which is that he doesn't no.
3: say magician once. No. Like he no. just says the clerk for the gas
2: company. Okay. <laughs>
3: Nothing no, wrong with that. No, I'm not saying that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that if you're trying to attract bankers and captains, if you're trying to attract Nelson Rockefeller or trying you to, you're not the bait. Yeah, you need yeah. Good bait. Yeah. It's Remember like fucking children of God with a uh, flirty fishing. Yeah. Use yes. the right bait. If you want to make about you gas don't work, and you don't. <laughs> without, I mean, if, but he. Scientology
1: know. did. Scientology, it's again, which we'll get into over the next two episodes. Is actors. That he, Scientology got, you get, you attract powerful people that
3: other people want to be around. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You can't use the guy from the gas company as your point, man.
2: Well, I'd rather be around him than most of these Scientologist actors.
3: Oh, without a doubt. Of course. Sure, whatever. But they ended up attracting mostly people on the fringes of society. Communists, pacifists, marginalized gay people like the Baxters. In other words, not people with a lot of money. But that changed when the Baxters brought in Jack Parsons. Mm. Parsons was a man of real consequence who was energized by Crowley's talk of hidden dimensions and forbidden planes. And he saw connections between Crowley's magical teachings and the work that scientists like Heisenberg and Schrodinger were doing in the quantum field. Now, this hadn't been the only magical philosophy that Parsons had explored. He'd also looked into Madame Blavatsky's Theosophical Society. But Parsons had found himself, quote, nauseated by Theosophy's talk of the good and true.
1: Mm. Is a shoe good or evil?
2: (laughs) Well, a shoe is mostly good. To be fair, a shoe is mostly good.
1: Yeah. Unless it's kicking a homeless man. Uh, that's a foot. That's the foot. Uh, is the
2: foot good <laughs> or evil? <laughs> that's neutral.
3: Well, for me, the way I kind of see it, the reason why Jack Parsons hated this talk of the good and true is because that's a conclusion. You know, it's something mm. that an experimental human like Parsons had no interest in. He was a seeker, an explorer. And as someone like him, someone else coming to a conclusion for him just wasn't any fun. Makes sense. And that's what is all about. It's a teacher. I have the answers. I have what's going on. Interesting. By contrast, the principles of Crowley were more open-ended and ripe for exploration. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, according to Crowley, until you talk to Crowley and then he wanted to control the whole thing, which is always the problem with the perennial master with someone who wants to be the master. And where Jack Parsons is truly interesting is because he is the student and he was a full, and he was, you remained a student and never wanted to be in charge of any one of these things. He didn't want to be in charge. He wanted to kind of be a conductor, but he didn't want to, he didn't want all the responsibility. If you read freedom is a two-edged sword, you see this interesting thing where he basically says, like, you know, this entire universe is based upon our perception we are each the only we are creating the entire world within our own minds. And we are the ones that have the power to you know, we can only control our world and nobody else's. But we have to leave room for other people's worlds. So how do you expect me to pay taxes mm.
2: <laughs> in, in, it's, in it's, America?
1: If you now. can't. Yeah, that's what he did. If you can't believe in objective reality at all, how are you supposed to fill out a fucking income tax form?
2: I don't know. <laughs> and now freedom is a two-edged gun, is it not? Is it not? Is it not? Is it Two-edged not?
1: gun? Powerful. That's very dangerous. More now, guns. The sword.
2: It's a freedom thing, is scary, but it needs yes. its
1: responsibility.
3: Yes, but uh-huh. talk about that. But even so, <laughs> Parsons had always been drawn to the darker side of the occult, specifically the sorts of myths and legends laid out in a since-discredited cultural anthropology book called The Golden Bough. Mm. Now, The Golden Bough was supposedly a collection of European pre-Christian pagan rituals and beliefs, which were brought to life on the silver screen in the 1973 classic The Wicker Man. Oh, sweet! Yeah. But we now know that Fraser filled in maybe one too many gaps in missing knowledge, which is to say... He made a lot of shit up based on guesswork and presented all of it as fact.
2: That's what Henry magic. and I asked you to do.
3: Magic. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
1: it's magic. It's just, its you know, you got to fill in those gaps, man. What do you think? <laughs>
3: remember when they did it in
1: Jurassic Park? Absolutely.
3: Yeah. And, they, and remember what happened? Because what? they filled in the gaps with the amphibian DNA, they started reproducing asexually and everything went to shit. No, you see, because human beings
1: are trying to put limits on the powers of life itself.
2: I just I didn't like the, the Chris Pratt one. I didn't like the balls. They had little hamster balls. <laughs> is, a, is
3: an umbrella good or evil? <laughs> hmm. Good point. Neutral. But the important part about the Golden Bough is that the author, Sir James George Fraser also had an inkling that magic and science were linked, just like Jack Parsons. Fraser wrote that, quote, both science and magic... Opened up a seemingly boundless vista of possibilities to he who knows the causes of things. And both can touch the secret springs that set in motion the vast and intricate mechanism of the world. Ripping Sweet. balls, dude, man. <laughs> nice. Fucking open your mind
1: today, dude. Get your shit together. Oh, be? You're God. you're the one. You guys are all trapped in your little boxes, man. Get out of your fucking box today, man. Mm-hmm. Holy shit.
3: In other words, Jack Parsons had a mind primed for magic and a promising future that could possibly fund the OTO and therefore fund Alistair Crowley. Oh, so Wilfred Smith initiated Parsons into the OTO immediately. And it's with the collision of science and magic that we'll pick back up for part two. Of our series, nice. I love his story. His story, just like I don't know what it is. It's deeply
1: inspiring. Yeah. I was actually in therapy, and I need. I was talking about this about how like I needed some form of inspiration, and as I've been reading through these books again. I just forget just how like this that idea of like you can get out there, you could you could build a rocket, you can suck and fuck, and you too can die in explosion at 38 years old, and it's you up to can. you. Yeah, Isn't you have fantastic.
2: the power. That is great. Awesome. All right. There it is. Mr. Parsons, part one is all done. It's all wrapped up. Yeah, so next week, we're going to be in Grand Rapids
1: and Indianapolis. Come and check us out. We're going to be without Marcus Parks. Marcus yes. Parks is still holding his body together with pieces yes. of duct tape, but soon <laughs> he will be patched together not unlike you ever seen the the japanese uh ceremonial pottery that's yes it might have been broken one time but now it's held together by gold yes Isn't indeed that, yes that's, exactly.
2: that's that's great there I'm and, well enough
3: I'm well enough to do a show and a putt around town but just not well enough to uh travel between two cities do 6 hours of performance uh and uh you know and ride on the horrible roads of Indianapolis which is what almost sent me to the hospital last time. that's right, well, true that is completely me.
2: literally
1: what happened but we are going to
3: be there. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Indianapolis be there. And I'll say India Indiana. Uh you need to Indiana. invest more in your infrastructure.
2: Well but yeah, now very how
3: else how else would we
2: be able to tell if the shocks in our cars work. <laughs> Unless they're know. tested. <laughs> tested. Test but yes, them. Can't wait to see everybody in Grand Rapids and Indianapolis. We're going to have an absolute blast. So thanks can't all wait. for so, checking that out. Thanks for checking out our serious shows. Thanks for checking out all of the shows here on the network. And do we have any other
3: clerical stuff to tell our audience? I will say that coming up very soon, uh, the next full series of No Dogs in Space is very close to being released hopefully about two weeks from now uh, but in the meantime be sure to check out the extra play we just did an extra play uh on our series uh that expands uh, on our joy division series that oh. we did last year uh that people seem to like uh based on mine and carolina's experiences in manchester so oh, be sure wow. to go check that out no dogs in space you're absolutely
2: a couple in- of regular manks you're gonna you're <laughs> gonna love the new series it's all about luke bryan yeah, which is a man I just found <laughs> out existed today. Yeah. Okay, everyone. Thank Who's you Who's Luke for, Bryan? I don't know. I saw a billboard for him. He's he looks a like one of these country musician, but right? he's like a new country guy. I don't yeah, know. Luke I just he's been saw him I don't know. Oh, uh, no, they're doing fog hat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I win. doing, fog, doing hat. fog hat. <laughs> <laughs> Eileen Warnos did not have a great time with that man. Micro All pills. right, every, Micro. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. Hail yourselves. Hail Satan. Yogi, Delations, everybody.
1: Hail me. Open your mind. Allow Be yourself to see. Go to the the chapel within. I think that's also important. Find what it looks like in your mind tonight. If mm. you can sit down, visualize that somewhere deep inside of you, there is a chapel that holds all of your potential energy and power. Walk inside. See me standing there. Give uh-huh. me money inside <laughs> of that chapel. And listen, I,
2: I'll yes. help you. Great. Well, well, that is what it's all about, isn't it? At the end of the day, everyone's just looking for fucking <laughs> It is It's hard. It's hard to be a wizard.
1: This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It says right here, what would you do if another extra hour of your day? I mean, well, obviously I'd get some nunchuck training in. Uh, I'd make love to my wife. That takes about nine, that's a full nine minutes of that hour. And then I would probably uh, go to get a donut. And then I'd probably yell at my parents. But a lot of us wish we had more time. The question is time for what? I don't know.